This feels this feels like you know hanging out with like the Velociraptors as they learn to like, you know, jump the fence. Um, yeah. Which is again probably he, he might not time. even get that reference. Did, exactly, yeah. it's, yeah. it's amazing. Not it's Jurassic amazing. Park, right? Uh, yeah, there there you go. Go. Hey, hey, look at you go. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Network Age. I am Mitchell Ritson here as always with my handsome co-host Tim Lukmiptev and Nil Run Mardux. Boys, how you guys uh, doing today? Hey, excited to pod? I'm feeling very handsome today. Yeah, ex- it's feeling, showing up uh, in the audio. Exactly. I yeah, feel like, feeling you know, good. Feeling look good. good, play good. Yeah, uh, I think we have a fun episode today. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of uh, OG boys discussion before later. We're going to have on Finn Brown, uh, that's Finnum Pilbus. Uh, of Vienna Hypertext to talk about the products they're working on and um, a ton of really interesting stuff. But before then, we wanted to dive into some topics that have been on our mind. We've been talking a lot about Web3 community, um, content creation, and sort of discovery and what that looks like, because that's, that's something that people seem to have really big ideas about. And there's a lot of buzzwords going on, but it seems to be ill-defined and there are some really interesting problems and questions in that space right well where do you want to start this one from like you could either start it from community or from content and i guess i've been thinking about content a lot lately just because i think you know back in the summer i was getting more into twitter and trying to build a presence there and doing other stuff and you start to really feel it as a discovery thing where you're doing, you're writing things and interacting with people in order to get notice. You're thinking about, um, you know, how you can draw attention to what you're doing. You're producing stuff consistently for the goal of getting it. And I guess I wanted to explore with you guys a little bit, just, um, if we talk about like communities, publishing content, like how in my, like, you know, how does the sort of goal to get discovered drive all of that? Um, and what are the limitations there and issues? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question, especially with the, with respect to the idea of community, because I think people underestimate the amount to which one of community's main functions is discovery, right? You create bonds with people who share similar interests, who help direct your interests and show you either new things or coalesce certain ways of being and living that really is related to how you discover things in the world, whether that's, you know, stuff happening in your neighborhood or that's in your online communities. And so we have a sort of interesting question about what parts do we want, like, automated, what parts we want to happen organically, and how do we reproduce that? We should give a little bit of context, too, because I'm old enough to remember when not all community was, you know, online and back in, let's say, you know, (laughs) college or college or high school, like you would have things form around, you know, people who listen to the same types of music and they would both like, you know, surface music for, you mean IRL, you know, people to listen to. 
Yeah, that's what they were IRL Reddit groups. That's what I call college. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, which probably explains why you know I think our guest today and then other people we've had just drop out of college in the first place because like <laughs> once you had just once you have Reddit and Twitter, like, uh-huh, it becomes uh-huh. very redundant. <laughs> but yeah, people you would have like people who would like you know build up reputations as having a certain kind of taste. They would surface stuff for you. Like literally, I would just have friends who you listen to their recommendations uh, for music more than others. Um, and that's a very sort of, you know, offline prototype of community, uh, before hitting, you know, communities hit their apotheosis online, but it's something that people do repeatedly. People, it's just a thing people do. People form communities, they start building reputations inside them and they start like, you know, surfacing things for people in those communities to direct their attention to. Yeah. And I think we live in a time where a lot of ideas about community and discovery are really taken for granted and we don't think about them very often and don't think about how big a role those concepts play in our experience of both being online and computing in general. I mean, so much of something like Twitter, any social media, um, but so many platforms we use, our information is being directed toward us in a certain way often by an algorithm with some of our input. Um, and we're being fed all this information that we, we had to sift through, but is designed for us both in our interests, but also to keep our attention in a way that can cause issues. I see some more subtle issues with it, even like, so I think those are the classic ones. And look, I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge that, you know, a lot, what I see on, you know, YouTube is heavily dictated by, you know, what the feed shows me on the front page beyond things that I've subscribed to or know how to navigate to. But on Twitter, I sort of consider myself a more responsible consumer of information. I set my feed to latest tweets. So I'm just seeing stuff purely in chronological order, not what, you know, the algorithm is surfacing necessarily. But even within that, you can't get away from the aspects of discovery like, okay, I'm probably following people because they have more followers. Uh, I see things people surface to the degree that they post about them. Like I'm still very much at the mercy of aspects of this platform and how big people have gotten uh, through manipulating uh, the algorithms in general, uh, you know, for what I, for what I see. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean, one of the questions here is like, what actually is the purpose of discovery what role do communities play in this? And like, is there, is there a vision for anything we actually want in a way to experience it? Or are we totally lost in the water looking around and saying, this isn't right, but not knowing exactly where to go? So I'll be interested to ask our guest about this later, but in my opinion, there's a few features of discovery. So the obvious one is discovering things. People want good stuff. Like I want to, you know, have various like, you know, thought porn to read on Substack. I want to like, you know, watch funny things. I want to like talk with, you know, talk with friends about various topics. Um, You know, maybe get book recommendations, things like that. I think another one people don't talk about as much, but that's really big is like, discovery, especially in an internet sense, is sort of the the game and the ladder that people have to try to like get big. It's almost this like online circulation of elites where Twitter, I think people like Twitter is very much this like multiplayer arena where, you know, you sort of have a shot to become bigger and build a certain type of like reputation if you do stuff. You know, Instagram is the same uh, in its own way. And I think those are the in my opinion, I think those are 
currently the two main functions of discovery, like finding stuff you want to consume that can, you know, maybe entertain you, make you a better person, feed your addictions, whatever. Um, and then also this like, that, that coexists alongside this status game of playing the game in order to move up and get more influence, which interestingly is exactly the same that IRL, uh, you know, communities worked, uh, you know, for something like music where there's this dual function of like people trying to acquire status in sort of small IRL communities and also, you know, finding music to listen to in that example. The, the, the question of status is interesting because I almost feel like there's a sort of new money, old money dichotomy to like where you've acquired status, right? Like, I don't know. I, I mm. feel like Go, go on, who, go on. I, I get well, what you mean. People who have become big online or something, you know, they're like, well, you know, they, they just showed up in West Egg, all right? You know, like, they, it's a little bit vulgar um, way to be rich in, in, in status, right? As if there, you know, there's, it, it, and this is, mm -hmm. I think, maybe mm -hmm. there, there's something people think ersatz about being online, which I don't know is actually true, but I, I do think that it's a strange competition between these two realms sometimes it's also interesting because it's like a competition for status of that algorithm right so it's like competition mm -hmm. for twitter's algorithm for facebook's algorithm we see this with tiktok and so it's like i don't know there's this more this broader question of like is that status like actually even a good thing or there's sort of this idea that you're really just monopolizing attention you're not like providing value so i find that kind of interesting as well it's a, well, the other interesting aspect, though, is that I'll also see the reverse where like, I totally agree that there's like, you know, let's say people on Twitter who are big there because of an outside presence that they've built in some way. And then people who are there because they were good at Twitter. And of course, sometimes people respect the people who built it outside of it more. But I also find there's a thing where people, you know, in some context, you actually might respect the person who built it online more because it indicates like a certain kind of savvy or being good at like a type of game that you care about. So like if someone's talking about like, you know, how tech works or how like social technology works or even discovery. Uh, I'm going to respect their opinion a little bit more if they were able to like, you know, successfully hack the discovery game themselves. Though I think I, uh, I really agree with Nil Run's point that there is a difference between someone who is good at the game and someone who is providing value outside of the game. And sometimes those things overlap, but often they don't and i think that mm -hmm. that is one of the fundamental questions of like discovering community is how do you filter through all this like manipulative bullshit to get at the stuff that actually matters to you and that's why i think like i don't know i personally don't give a fuck if someone has a big twitter following if they're not saying anything that is interesting mm -hmm. or compelling to me i don't know i saw some funny thing the other day that was someone who had like i don't know probably like 8,000 followers, which not huge, but it's a lot. It probably took time. And they, they tweeted something like, just moved to New York. What's the point of this internet clout if I'm not immediately getting invited to all the parties? And uh, <laughs> I don't know. And, <laughs> I, it, it's, and it made me think about like, oh, like where does like internet clout originate from? And what is it actually for? What gives you sort of power in this system? And I think that like, once you dig a little bit 
deeper, then the real the real question is, are you providing value? Are you creating interesting content, writing good things, pushing ideas forward? Um, that's what really matters. So the question is, how do we make these make discovery community and content converge in a way that pushes thought forward, that challenges people and interests us? All right. Well, if that's the case, like that we're wondering, you know, how we can discover better things or not just be at the mercy of people who have, you know, done really well there. That leads into what I see as like one of the current dissatisfactions in discovery is that like it was definitely easier to get big Twitter followings if you were earlier in Twitter. Let's just stay on Twitter for now, even though this is, this is pretty well applicable to other platforms. Um, I think one problem people feel is that it's almost, it's the classic one of like a political system that's become ossified where, you know, the people at the top aren't circulating and it's stopped being meritocratic in some ways. And there's this like staleness where the people at the top maybe are off their game and aren't saying as interesting things, but they're still the ones who have bigger megaphones and people are, you know, can't, you know, be fucked to keep like following everyone new who comes in or sifting through that. And so you get this thing where, and at the same time that used to be solved uh, on the internet by continuous circulation of platforms. So people have been building communities and doing discovery on the internet forever. You'd like Usenet, then like, you know, various like, you know, AOL type communities going through like, you know, Reddit in various eras, uh, blog, we can go through all the, you know, ways that things have gone. And now we've hit this era where just a couple big platforms have gotten this entrenched position. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, it feels like a late stage French aristocracy where like, you know, you're not, it's very hard to like, you know, move to nobility if you're not already there. And I think that's what we might mean when we're talking about like, sort of how do you discover new things and not just be at the mercy of these people with 8k followers who want their New York clout. Mm. And do you think there's also a dynamic of the person just broadcasting their ideas and they kind of run out of ideas? It's, it seems, I don't know, sometimes I find with Twitter, like I'm not, like it's great if I want to basically use it to broadcast but I, I haven't found it to be amazing for discovery on a day-to-day -day basis. If I want to go deep into like one particular topic, it's been great for that. But I'm curious, Tim Luck, like what's been your experience just being on, you know, investing a fair amount of time now into Twitter? Like, do you find like you're still getting access to like new ideas regularly or is, or is that kind of becoming stale and mm. you're mostly using it to broadcast? That's a really, I feel right now like I'm mostly broadcasting I'm not getting very like sort of surfacing much that's new and most of what's new that I've surfaced that's been interesting has been when I've sort of accidentally and very rarely found a good like pod or substack that then gives me some resources or has a decent back catalog uh, to go into. Right. And it's mm. actually been very rare that I find someone on Twitter who I follow and then is like consistently saying, insightful things. I think there's a few people who are around the time of tornado cash and then like ETH censoring concerns. Like I thought like, you know, Eric wall in crypto had a really good string of stuff on specifically on Twitter in that time, but that's mostly, and then I think I'm in the Ukraine war. There's some people who had some good runs for information, but those are mostly notable in their rarity, uh, especially in tech and crypto. It feels like there's, you know, almost not, not very much alpha on Twitter right now, but it's also kind of hard to find, you know, okay, which sub stacks do I want to read? stuff like that there's there's a significant like sort of quality mm -hmm. discovery problem i mean i think that sort of raises a fundamental question which is what is the point of 
broadcasting at all? Um, mm-hmm. And is it only to to build clout? Which like that that the building clout idea is sort of in some ways fundamentally opposed to uh, to discovery in this system when it's used when it's being manipulated by algorithms in this way because you're motivated to behave in a certain way to create a certain type of content and i think that brings me back to what like the most fundamental question of all of this which is how do we want to relate to our computers what should the relationship between humor humans computers and online be in this sort of network age where there is going to be an increase in the amount of digital global tools at our disposal and we're going to have to decide how we relate to them how we use them and i think that you know we it's easy to dismiss like the algorithm concern as sort of like oh we we talked about that before but i think it is related to to all these questions about like how do you balance um quality and uh, your ex- experience here uh, as as a user, because I, I think that's really is the fundamental question here. Hmm. Are you asking this in terms of like how does an ideal user do it? I'm asking like in terms of like the, we have these platforms for building communities. We can say Twitter is something mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. Um, there's, you know, Urban is something like that, uh, you know, Discord, yada, yada. And mm-hmm. you're having to balance questions of how do you find people who provide the community and experience you want? How do those people help you get in touch with content that excites you and motivates you? And how do you have a healthy relationship with it and where you are not being manipulated to use the platform in a way that is bad for you. And also the people who are providing community and content are not being incentivized to do it in a way mm. that is, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, problematic, like something like does not actually increase value okay. within the system. So you realize that there's a very, very fundamental tension there. Um, and it can probably be resolved in ways that are better or worse or balanced, but I don't think you can ever get rid of the tension, which is the tension between my wanting to, you know, find the best stuff where best can mean sort of a combination of most interesting, healthiest, well-balanced, not, you know, affecting, you know, how I am. And then as a publisher, um, or someone creating content, there's the tension of wanting to be able to get it to the people who would be interested in it. And those things are, there's a lot of tension there because on the user side, of course, I can easily, in that pursuit, I can easily be hijacked by stuff that's just addictive uh, or just able to take up my attention. It's just kind of shallow. And as a publisher, I can get like audience captured very easily where I am able to get my message out. Uh, but it's, you know, it's like in a way where it's shaped by the audience and isn't what I wanted to say over time. And then of course there's also like, you know, users having a finite amount of attention and publishers trying to get that. And, you know, I don't know whether you're the perfect like audience for me when I'm like writing stuff on Twitter, but I still Mm want to like mostly try to capture you anyway. So I think it's, I think it's really hard. And I think that certain platforms could make it work somewhat better or find like sort of a good spot in that, you know, kind of balancing scheme, but it's really not, it's really non-trivial. And like, 
I'm not. I actually am sort of, the reason I'm interested to talk to our guest today is I actually am kind of at a blank right now for exactly how I would go, like, go about discovery or balancing those things. And like, I'm not exactly sure how I would improve on the present world, even though I don't think the present world is that great. I think that's that's really interesting. I'm curious what you think about how Urbit has handled this. I mean, there isn't a sort of like native discovery tool in the mm. system. It's sort of word of mouth, but certainly communities exist there that feel very different than the ones that exist on traditional web two social media platforms where it's more hand to hand person to person, but they're, mm-hmm. they're certainly like lively and energetic. I do feel like there's been like too many sacrifices to get that, like in the experience, mm-hmm. uh, or is there something to be said for, um, I don't know, I guess a more traditional community experience replicated online. So, so the way Urbit handles it currently, and Urbit is kind of maybe too broad a word, I would say like the current social products running on Urbit, which is mostly, sure. you know, the, the chat product that Talon makes. Um, the way it's handled that is mostly by limit, like by doing sort of Dunbar number type relationships where like you have like, you know, um, there's sort of a maximum of like maybe a hundred people you can hold in your head uh, and you interact with them through like a variety of communities or in a few there. And that's, that's actually like pretty good for handling, you know, the reputation parts of community, like ongoing um, iterations of interactions, like discovering you know, who might be interesting to you. And people have made some successful group communities around that. The problem that it doesn't do is like, I guess you would call it like the evangelism problem. So the big promise of the internet is that you might be very weird um, or, you know, at least like niche, um, but you can find all of the other people in the world who sort of fit that and might be really good collaborators for you, just people to socialize with, whatever. And I think Urbit current Urbit based products currently have a hard time fulfilling that promise. Where if you're in a community, you're kind of it's, it's actually very much like being born in a town, and you're kind of stuck with the people there. And you know, in this case, you know, maybe a very smart town and very selected along certain traits. But I think the promise of jumping on Twitter or something is that you can like, um, you know live that internet dream of finding the other five or 10 people in the world who are kind of like you, even if, you know, Twitter really isn't hitting that dream a lot of the time. And that's the kind of thing that I'm, you know, interested in figuring out ways to solve. Yeah, that makes sense. In some ways, Urbit is, has already at, at this point, it's like passed beyond the first filter. Like the great filter is finding and getting on Urbit at all. And then within that, there's already a sort of enough aligned, um, values and interests that discovery can happen more organically but as the as the system grows that's going to be less and less possible yeah i think we're past the point on urbit now where you can sort of depend on okay i found it for these reasons and so probably these other people found it for kind of similar reasons we're past that but we also don't have the like you know discovery tools of something like Twitter to let you sort of get the positives of that. So you're almost just stuck with the negatives of kind of a, you know, an undifferentiated uh, community without like a way to like find all the people who are, you know, relevant to you in it. Yeah, which is incredibly problematic when you think about it, because Urbit, you know, if it wants to be the OS um, of crypto or just more broadly, the networked operating system, like it needs to evangelize people. So it can't just sit 
inside of Urbit right now. It needs that discoverability. It needs to be able to uh, make itself known to the world. So there's sort of this, this tension there. Let's also expand that tension past Urbit to all of Web3. I think people are generally like frustrated with aspects of, you know, discoverability in Web3 in general. And you could like extend that exact same comment like out to all of it. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, as podcasters, obviously, discoverability is our biggest concern because, frankly, it's astounding that we don't have um, millions of listeners hundreds of thousands sure yeah they're they're against us algorithms are weighted against us yeah Mm -hmm. and it's a Mm -hmm. serious hopefully this this podcast is too handsome to be listened to it is especially vocally yeah exactly well i think uh we did a really nice job there diving into some of the current problems with this sort of triangle of content community and discoverability and i'm really looking forward to talking to finn and and hearing what they're working on and uh, some of his vision for this uh, relationship. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, and welcome back to the Network Age. We are joined by Finn Brown, aka Finnum Pilbus uh, of Vienna Hypertext. And Finn, we're really excited to have you on to talk about all the cool products you're making and the interesting stuff you're working on. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so in the in the first part of this episode, we were talking a lot about um, you know issues of discovery, content creation, community, and how those are built in, in Web 2 or Web 3, what our relationship are to those things. And Vienna Hypertext is one of the most interesting projects to emerge in that space. So I'd, we'd love it if you could just um, give us a little rundown of, of what Vienna Hypertext is, how it works, and maybe uh, some of your personal background as well, how you got started in this type of project. Yeah, I, 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 the anecdote I always use is... Um just being in college uh, and spending you know, practically every working hour on a computer and realizing that, you know, that everything I was using was like 10 or, or 20 years old. And, and it was really only the computer science people that had, you know, tools that really fit the job they were doing. You know, I was doing a bunch of like literature stuff or even some mm-hmm. like reading some, some like social science papers. And you just, you know, you'd have like Acrobat open and you're like, wow, you know, I could do so much more with this, but, um, I, I, I couldn't program and it sort of had no way to actually make that happen. And then sort of stumbled on a lot of these early computer pioneers, Alan Kay, um, Ted Nelson with, with, with Xanadu. And, you know, it's probably quite well known in the urban world, but to me, I, I really did not, uh, know anything about this. And it was like some, lost dream or something. So it's like, oh my God, the, the interface is so cool. This dream for like how the academic student or like the sort of Renaissance man in the computer age is going to use the computer is, you know, fucking awesome. We, we should, we should do something in this area. <laughs> um, and like steal the vibes. It's, it's so much better. Like, you know, get rid of the colors, sharpen up the corners. Like this is what computers are supposed to be. And then you could go watch on like YouTube, Steve Jobs introduced the Mac and you're like, oh my, this is, this is a real thing. It could actually happen. And um, yeah, so we sort of combined that with um, 
basically web technologies to build uh, to, to build Vienna. Um, I think, and that, that's sort of a shorthand for for Vienna Hypertext, which is basically a, sort of this canvas hypertext platform where um, you can upload lots of things, create lots of things on a two D canvas, and then you can uh, reuse them uh, across canvases, and and other people can reuse the images, the text, video, music, whatever, um, and then you just get this web. Excuse so me. So a the, couple the, questions the I have. Go. Yeah. So so this was an idea that happened while you were in college, like you and other people. Yeah. So my my co-founder Jack and I were sort of tossing tossing ideas around what we could do here. We we had some idea about maybe doing a uh, a really high quality Western Canon digitally, and that that, that was seen mm-hmm. as like a sure. you know an easy thing um, for for people who didn't really know how to program. But you know, you sort of you start to work on projects, and I think we we realized there was maybe even a, a more general use case here um, around, uh, I guess, calm calm computing on the internet or, or something like that. What do you mean by a, a high quality Western Canon? It's hard for me to picture exactly. What you mean. <laughs> Sorry, it's just, just like um, if you go and search Moby Dick on Apple Books or whatever, there's like mm-hmm. sixty five of them, and you know, it's unclear if you're going to get, you know, encoding errors or, um, mm. you know, hyper-compressed images or something like that. And we're like, you know, we could just do like mm. a really high-quality uh, set of digital texts. And that, that, that could be uh, okay. useful. Yeah. So this is like, so the idea is like, so it was sort of like a digital anthology, right? Like sort of like yes. curating what's in there and then like nailing the presentation and et cetera. Well, and from there, the, the obvious, uh, well, I guess the, the way we got to hypertext was, well, if you're going to have a really high-quality set of the Western canon, what is the Western canon? You know, it's not just a set of books. It's a bunch of you know, texts from a culture that are all referring to each other. And you, know, you could take something like Ulysses and all of the references back to Shakespeare. And those are implicit in the physical world. They could become explicit if you did a really high quality version. And there's some kind of one-off sites that have done this for, for books, you know, for mm-hmm. philosophers who are referencing back or whatever. And the idea is, you know, what if we, what if we did this um, as, as kind of a platform and let people do it, um, you know, just as users? And then we sort of push it further and we're like, well, you know, texts are good, but um, why limit it to just sort of what we were into in school? Um, you know, this, this sort of linking phenomenon should be really, really powerful. It's maybe even way more powerful with things like images or concepts like that. Yeah, yeah I think that's super interesting for this type of um, reference material. I'm curious, have you ever read any, like, of the hypertext novels or hypertext fiction that was coming out? No. So uh, I, this is all stuff people bring up to me, and I'm, I've, I'm always embarrassed that... Uh, I don't know everything about all, all hypertext references. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just this a really cool area of fiction that sort of seemed to have had a moment. I don't think anything big has um, come out. I think the most famous one is called The Unknown. Um, but it's, you know, an idea of a sort of exploratory, hands-on, tangible text that allows you to move through it in lots of different ways, you know, different sentences will link to different parts you can experience the book from all kinds of different directions you know it gets compared to things like 
Borges's like Garden of Forking Paths or the Book yep. of Pale Fire or even Ulysses, right? Which like you can imagine the version that you develop where you can mm. click around in the book and jump around and experience its references and it from different times and, and rework the the experience. You know, it's a goosebumps choose your own adventure for, for well, literature. Wasn't wasn't pale, wasn't pale wasn't Pale Fire basically written in that manner where Nabokov like put like had it like a lot of index cards like for each thing and mm-hmm. essentially like sort of jumbled them up and then like linked them together. Yeah, yeah. And so uh Finn, your uh your Nabokov for the the network age, I think is the conclusion we reached. I don't want to do too much crosstalk, but um what just for cards on the table, like what were you uh you and your co founder majoring in? at the time when you came up with this? It's sort of a longish story. I was supposed to do philosophy, and then I wanted to do a little bit of history, so they had this, this special thing at Harvard called social studies, um, which is supposed to basically be that. And then for essentially political reasons, I bailed out of each of those my senior year and did economics. Um, but the anecdote <laughs> I always use is, uh, like, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the dismal science. That, that's just totally correct. Um, the good news is, you know, if you have a regression and it shows something kind of spicy, let's say like, you know, maybe uh, imperialism in Africa was actually good for development and, you know, so, you know so, something that's like not totally politically correct. You just used your like one of your two like allotted racisms for the episode. So <laughs> just like be careful. Yeah, scorecard, yellow card. <laughs> <laughs> they would just ask questions about your aggression and they would be like, okay, you know, is the data set good? Um, you know, did you play with the numbers here? They actually did not care at all about um, what, what you were trying to do. And yeah, I, that was very refreshing. I've, interact, I've interacted substantially with uh, economists at Harvard at both the undergrad and grad level when I was there. And yes, they were sufficiently autistic to like only care about that. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. And then your was your what was your co-founder in? He did English literature um, and ended up dropping out. Actually. Wow. Can't believe we're in business with some ne'er do well dropouts. I mean, isn't it the op- isn't the it pot. the opposite where like we're like the unsuccessful ones who all yeah. like, yeah. graduated yeah. from yeah, Harvard? Like, to drop that, out of Harvard. That's, that's like yeah. a core. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm curious then, like. I want to kind of get your perspective because you've mentioned calm computing. You've mentioned your dissatisfaction with tools. And I actually don't like the idea of, let's say, you know, this urban phrase of calm computing because it sounds like sort of a negative goal. But I also resonate very highly with the idea of I'm on my computer all day. I essentially already live in the metaverse. And the stuff that I have on my computer isn't that great tool wise. So I'm curious when you're, when you're coming at this is like, is the goal to kind of make your computer time better and make the tools higher quality? Uh, or is that like, and sort of more interesting, better to work with, or is there something else that's like motivating that? I think that's, uh, that's, that's the correct starting point. I, I, I think there's a lot to say about how a, a network, when it starts to really work, can influence a culture. Um, and I, so I don't, I don't want to like, ignore that. But I think on, on this pure question of like interface and what is calm computing a negative, I would say an a anecdote, um, you know, it, it might be scientific, it might not be, is like why does every um, app now have rounded corners and rounded edges wherever possible? Uh, 
the the thing I heard was that um, somewhere very early in your visual processing, sharp edges get categorized as possible threats, be it, you know, the, <laughs> the edge of a sword, the, 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 the cut of a tooth or something. Now, I don't know if that's, that's right, but I think it totally fits with, on the other side, with everything becoming round and, and vibrant colors, with just a kind of consumer-only mode of computing, um, which we're, mm. we're very much cutting against. So I would use calm computing to, to cut against that, where it, it, it's calm, but it's not consumer. Interesting. So calm computing isn't this like, I don't know, when I say it's negative, I think of it as like essentially like, okay, we shouldn't be at our computers in the first place, but if we have to be there, let's make them not have too many, you know, notifications going off. And it sounds like for you, it's more about this kind of having more interesting experiences by getting rid of the constraint of like, this has to be the sort of bland, uh, you know, lowest common denominator consumer thing. Is that inaccurate? Like sort of hundred percent. I mean, think, mm. I think best so that's case, more compelling and interesting. Play computer, you know, computer versus outside. Shouldn't in 1500 library and outside be the comparison to make. And probably you can overdo a library too, but um, it's very different between sort of library and outside and brothel and outside um, or, you know, opium den and outside, which is so if, it, if we're going to be at the computers, make it a library or in whatever library used to represent. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think we like are you're saying that we're sort of over abstracting this idea of sitting at your computer and computers are very, very broad tools that can be very different things when you're there in the same way that we would never like abstract away like both a brothel and a library as both being inside is that right yeah exactly yeah i've not thought of it that way i like that yeah come computing in this context is not merely an absence of computing itself but it is the um absence of these things that stimulate us in a way that it takes over our our mind and makes it hard to actually get what we want out of the experience. You know, you have mm-hmm. like the flashy colors, the the rounded corners, where it's asking something of you that you did not want to give to the experience. That brings me then to, you mentioned earlier, you were saying that like at the end of the day, you're making this computing experience or thinking about this computing experience, but network influences culture. And so you're interested in how you can like you know, create networks of those computers. And before you got on this episode, we were talking about like just discovery and the challenges of it, how it dictates the kinds of things people produce, um, how platforms do it better or worse. And it's, it feels to me a lot like current discovery is a very rounded corners type thing where it's done in these very lowest denom- like common denominator ways. You're not finding very interesting stuff surfaced on a lot of the platforms yep. you're on or even people you talk to. And, but at the same time, discovery is a really hard problem. There's like a lot of tensions in it. Like, you know, the person publishing wants to, is competing for a finite amount of attention uh, and has to make themselves known in the world. The person consuming, um, you know, wants to make it sort of, you know, as healthy as possible, but is constantly having that hijacked. Do you feel like you guys have any sort of specific insights into how discovery can and should be done in order to like form better networks? So when we think about discovery that we like, it's 
it is like wandering in a library. I think that one is so general, it's just not helpful at all. It's, it's so detached. I think no one is, a, is opposed mm. to that model. But the closest we can come, or I think the, Jack and I think like Wikipedia is actually great discovery, despite all the challenges mm-hmm. of the platform mm-hmm. and the fact that it's like a consensus mm. machine. Discovery is insanely good. Like uh, I was yep. a debater in high school. We would play Wikipedia races. I, I think it was well beyond debate even, but you know, you'd pick two random pages and you'd have to figure out a way to link between them. And, and you could get obscure pages done in like six links. It, it was shocking how few links it would take to get from, you know, some weird type of route <laughs> to, you know, a football player that played like two years in 1986. Like you could, it, it was incredible. And that's the, uh, that's the hypertext magic sauce uh, in discovery is that you just, humans make these linkages. You're presented with many of them. One draws you in, you follow it, and it takes you to other places. It's sort of you're in hypertext, you're able to move in multiple dimensions as opposed to sort of just dealing with what is right in front of you, what is scrolling through you. That, I mean, that's how Discovery works on so many other platforms is you have what is presented to you and then you have the ability to search for a very specific thing. But um, Hypertext, in my experience playing around with it, it, does have a sort of, I think, Wikipedia-like feel where you're able to approach... Um, from multiple directions, you can you can find all kinds of different connections between things, and it makes it feel from from my end pretty organic and exciting and, and different than a lot of other platforms. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing everyone has experienced that we're um, very strongly against is you click on something and it then recommends you know fifteen other things that are exactly like it. Like Instagram is maybe the worst mm-hmm. at this, but YouTube is the same. And you know, maybe there's some variation in there. Maybe they have a, a model for your preferences and they you know, apply a layer there. But somehow this is all like a little bit too, too machiny. And like the, the, the model you want is like exploring an environment or something. So it, it has to either be like totally natural or, or have, have humans actually do the, the whole... Uh, discovery process. Mm. So how would you like Vienna to improve on the Wikipedia experience? Like how specifically? Well, we don't want to be a source of truth in the way that Wikipedia does. We actually thought Mm. a lot about that because I think there's a huge problem with Wikipedia right now, which is that it's obviously right on most scientific or, you know, things that are not debated at all. But um, it, it is, has an incredible embedded establishment bias, which is very oppressive to human thought because it makes it seem like there sort of is one way to think about things and you should just sort of agree with that. And, you know, it very rarely says just false things, although you can find some. But um, it's, it's a very incomplete version of the truth. And so I think, um, you know, if you take something... I think an issue that's pretty uh, okay to talk about now is, is like the lab leak. Well, Wikipedia is awful on this and has been awful mm-hmm. and is not a good way to find truth. And, uh, you know, we were wondering a lot about whether Vienna was in a position to try and do something about that. And, you know, maybe if people want to use it that way, great. But um, 
we've ultimately decided it, it should be more of a personal computing platform and, and not as much a, uh, like a collective intelligence, I guess. So there's a great company that, that we use and we're definitely inspired by, Arena, um, which is kind of this tool for designers where you basically upload uh, images and you can connect between them. And do you think ultimately, okay, so, so multiple answers, not just like one truth underlying, and you mentioned it being personal. Do you think like ultimately that'll be mostly community-based? Like certain communities will be able to kind of come up with their own, I don't know, I guess source of truth, or do you think it'll sort of remain at that individual level? Yeah, so can't talk too much in detail about this because it's kind of our big, uh, this is the big internal push, but um, absolutely community needs to be a big part of it. I think starting with the individual has has been good, and then you, I think you can talk about like a Discord model and why despite, you know, a lot of challengers, it, it has really worked as a, as a way to do communities um, Reddit also surprisingly mm-hmm. resilient, um, but each have their, their flaws. Yeah. So what I'm actually, what I'm wondering when I hear this, and again, maybe this is something you can't say because of what you're you know, doing internally, but like we've talked, you know, we're talking about how this, what this discovery is, how does it actually happen on the tool or what are some of the ways that you think, you know, you can just practically, uh, you know, let's say outcompete discord, um, Reddit, and outcompete in the sense of like you know providing a better experience, like you know making my life better. I think competing with Discord and Reddit is probably exactly the wrong way to think about it. But I I do yeah like I, on a hyper concrete level. How do you um, make my life better? Like I actually right. I, I don't even use like Reddit or Discord that much. So it, 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 so like if you wanna if you wanna make um you know a, a plate on Vienna, which is our name for the, the canvases about an idea, great, we're perfectly set up for that. If you want to collaborate on an idea with you know, some friends or something, you can do that today. But um, what would it mean to have, like, you know, a school club or a group of dissident artists using Vienna? I mean, in fact, there are many that already do, but, you know, there's, there's some kind of collaborative uh, thing that, that needs to be there. I think a shared set of objects is probably the obvious starting point. And um, from there, you, you really have this question of interface and how do you make that shared set of objects available to people and, and, and discoverable. What we've mostly done so far is not, you know, there's practically no way to view these objects that is not placed by a human there next to other things, everything with an X and a Y. And um, I think there's, there's strengths to that. Um, I think we're working on some other views that might help with this, you know, set of objects problem too. Do you have a sense of how many people are on Vienna right now and how fast the platform is growing? Because I think that yeah. these questions really change as um, as more and more people are are on there. It becomes more complex in so many ways. I'll just give you the straight-up numbers. There's 1,000 people on the app, and we basically stopped inviting people. So the only people who can get on now are um, basically Urbit signups um, and 2,000 on the wait list. And 
we've already seen some eternal September problems, not in the sense that like the servers are in trouble, but in a sense that what there was like, uh, you know, these flowers kind of starting to grow that are competing for limited sunlight and we need to figure out, um, mm. good ways to let, you know, that growth be non-zero sum before we can really start to push that number we, much higher. Can we get into that? Because for me, this is like where the rubber meets the road. Like everyone can start out with like, you know, their friends or a limited group group doing stuff. But at the end of the day, the reason we're all a little bit stuck in places like Twitter or using other, other tools is that like no one else has really done discovery that well. And we're, we're talking about discovery at that point, like how you handle, uh, you know, the competition between those flowers. Uh, for sunlight. So do you guys have any like sort of practical insights or hypotheses that you want to test out in that regard in terms of making it good or making it work? Our gut feeling is you just want to have humans do the whole thing. That's our gut feeling. Um, so everything that you're getting um, recommended should be in some way connected to something you've done on the app. So let's make it very concrete. For example, I upload a, um, a picture of... Um, you know, a painting of Napoleon. And rather than we run an AI, figure out it's Napoleon, recommend you a bunch of other uh, paintings of generals, we'll just wait for somebody to connect that painting somewhere. Or maybe we'll figure out that the identical image was used someplace else. And then from there, you know, if it's placed next to something else by a human, that's our discovery strategy. Um, it's certainly kind of unconventional. It might even sound like an anti-strategy, but I think uh, <laughs> at, le- at least so far, it, it, you know, connections are interesting because you know a human made them. So my concern, though, then no concern is the wrong is the wrong word, but like sort of the obvious next question is: Is this like engaging enough for the user, like those inner relationships between image? Because I mean, it definitely sounds like from your and your co-founders' backgrounds, you know, you guys are heavily text-based, and I'm also, you know, I'm someone who like, you know, kind of absorbs reading material very heavily, and like visual stuff is nice, but like it can't communicate precise ideas in the same way. And I think the popularity of stuff like Substack, podcasts, things like that indicate there's like a fair amount of other people in that camp. So how do you guys like plan to bridge that? Because it feels like there's like very fundamental limitations in terms of the types of discovery that can happen when it's like just, you know, image juxtaposition. Well, it's not just uh, image stuff, right? I mean, one thing that was really cool when I first started playing with it is you can move just as easily between like PDFs of manifestos and people posting songs as well as weird images. And I found that like it did feel, you know, obviously in this sort of platform, you can only see sections of something, but it Mm -hmm. at least um, was more engaging than simply a link to an article, right? You would get like a whole PDF of like a treatise attached to some painting. And I think there is the fact that these are human created links creates a sort of curiosity, which is like, I Mm, kind of wanted to know what that link was and discover it. And it's, I don't know. It's not like I went and read through like entire like treatises just because of that, but I was like playing with them and looking around and trying to find what these connections were. And I I found that pretty stimulating. I'd say on the text point, um, I think text on Vienna is good right now. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. The connecting part is not so good. I mean, it's, it works in the sense that I can you know, put in a piece of text and you can, you can connect that exact piece of text somewhere. But that's obviously somewhat limited, right? You want to be able to take a piece of it uh, and have, you know, there be as like one copy of, of Shakespeare and everyone that, that's talking about Shakespeare should take pieces mm. of that one copy. And then that's the kind of Wikipedia experience for text, which, um, you know, is possible today, especially with, you know, some machine learning stuff that, you know, people who are really good at that have, have figured out how to do. But um, it's even, you know... It, Kind of counterintuitively, it was easier with images for a long time to, to figure out what, what images were similar um, or even the mm-hmm. same than it was for, for text because you would have this issue of different translations or, you know, subtle rephrasings and difference in spacing and stuff. Um, and that's not live and, you know, it's a hard thing to actually do on an engineering level to really get it feeling like it's, it's doing what a human would do. But... Um, I think when we, when we let it out, it's going to be really powerful. Okay. okay. So I mean, just I can, to I, clarify, I you're, yeah, you're saying that like right now, if people wanted to reference like a Shakespeare play, you might have 10, 20 people uploading the play like on their own and then linking from there to whatever they wanted to link to, which decreases the amount of um, complexity in the web, right? You can't follow easily from like person A's link to a Shakespeare play to then person B's link. And so you want to try to to create unified places for people to discover across communities. 100%. And you can imagine how this interacts well with bringing in groups because then perhaps groups have, um, you know, certain objects that they make completely public and are sort of known almost as a publish, publisher of a networked object. So, you know, a reading group might be really into a certain thing. They, they have, you know, their four or five texts that they publish as network objects or, you know, hyperpop people in Brooklyn, if they want to have networked pieces of sound and, you know, what, what does publishing those look like? And, you know, I, I can click on a piece of sound. I can go see all the associated images from the different creators who've played with it and, um, you know, start my discovery journey that way. So do you guys think of this as like the kind like that? I mean, right now we're looking just at like sort of more individuals making plates and using the software, but you're imagining like groups using it as their sort of creative group outlet in some ways to like, as like the pro like the product that they make. Yes. Yes, and we've already seen some of this. I think you know, smallish groups, right? The two, three mm-hmm. people. But um, you know, I think it's probably worth saying on this text topic. I think a little interesting discovery. Um, maybe others have, have have discovered this, but I think we kind of came to it um, our, ourselves. Which is, you know, as, as, as nice as hypertext is, and the the Ted Nelson articulation that became famous in the Werner Herzog movie is you know, it should, it should be like water. There's a, there's a fluidity to hypertext, which is really powerful and can only happen on a computer. And that's true. But there's also a kind of strength and a mental clarity that comes from linear text. And that's the sort of strength of a narrative. You know, this and then this and then this and then this. And so as great as Vienna is for creating, I think uh, it's, it's, it's actually much freer to use something like a canvas. Um, you know, it's much closer to paper for getting your ideas down and, and, and really sort of brainstorming. 
I think on the presentation level, linear text is actually stronger, um, at least to, to read. I think text in 2D is, is hard for people to, to handle. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, we get this and we're going to try and do something about that um, in, terms of, in terms of views. You know, I think this is, this just overarchingly is a very big problem. Um, And I'm just thinking about, you know, ultimately, if I just want to know, for example, who else is sort of believes in a digital renaissance, um, who else is kind of believing in the network age and kind of sees this change in history, it's like really hard to discover that content. Like we, we ourselves on this podcast kind of struggle finding those, uh, the thought leaders across the various spaces that'll be impacted, you know, from... AI to personal computing, and it, it's just really hard to discover them because they're they're not there's no linkages. So I'm starting to, yeah, just kind of really see the bull case here for having that content be linked and then being able to like discover and then like jump into a new community. Whereas right now, a lot of my digital experience feels very isolated. I find one person, for example, one Substack, and I mm-hmm. dive into that, but I'm not able to bridge from that person's Substack into the next person who's related. It feels really like segmented. Yeah, I mean, this brings up perhaps the most important point on discoverability social networks in general today, which is everything is becoming the same. Everyone is is thinking the same on Twitter, or they're they're being pushed into three or four buckets. And there's all these stories you can tell. Maybe it's a story of globalization, and it kind of fits with the economic stuff. Maybe it's a story about um, the internet and the fact that it's you know it's all happening through you know, two operating systems and three browsers and four websites. But like that sameness is is oppressive. Um there's also mm. probably like an architectural story you could tell about glass buildings or something. Um and I think like there there's huge opportunities for discovery that doesn't feel like it's trying to turn you into one of a few set types. Um and obviously that's hard, right? But like I don't think humans don't all want to be the same. Um, and like, that's the thing that really sucks about Twitter is it feels like you always are getting talked out of things and uh, it's, it's, it's very oppressive for that reason. Okay, Finn, I actually wanted to ask about another product that Vienna just released, which is Scribe, which is a, um, a transcription service for your phone that you know, it works really well. It's it's super accurate, which is great. But when it first came out, I sort of had some questions about how this fit in with Vienna Hypertext and, and the vision of the company. It, it seemed like out of left field. And then when we spoke before, you said something really interesting about being scribe, being part of a, of a sense of what should be possible. You described it not just a negative vision for the future, but a sort of I don't know, a digital renaissance in lines with like, I don't know, some like sci-fi as you imagined it when you were a kid. So I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that, what motivated Scribe and this, this vision that you've talked about to me. Yeah, so Scribe is, I've, I've, I'm a terrible speller and have tried to use dictation basically my whole life in high school for papers and everything and um, have, have, have really tried all of them, Dragon Dictation, Otter, Google, whatever. Um, and uh, OpenAI released this Whisper model, open source MIT license, and it was just on another level. And 
it became clear using it that uh, voice was going to become a first-class citizen for interacting with a computer because it was going to be able to understand you with uh, human-level accuracy. Um, And that is a tool in the toolkit of the sci-fi spaceship captain that we haven't had yet. Um, you could you could sort of LARP it and use Siri, but uh, it wasn't actually a thing that you would choose to to use. Scribe, which is basically sort of a fine-tuned version of this OpenAI model and some you know audio tricks on the device, um, basically feels like a totally new type of dictation experience because it will just not make mistakes that you expect it to make or, you know, you could, for email purposes, for Slack purposes, um, you just don't have to proofread it. And that's kind of a game changer. Um, we always, sort of the mission of Vienna Hypertext is to build tools for digital renaissance. Um, we want digital renaissance to happen. The Hypertext platform is absolutely core to that. Um, how you do a good job with digital renaissance on mobile is a little bit less clear to us. Um, you know, I think canvases are notoriously hard on a small screen. There's probably some like views we could do, but absolutely it felt like voice uh, was a great way to take content and, well, it's not even content, to take an idea and turn it into something that computers can like understand. And right now you can't easily pipe uh, stuff from Scribe into, into Hypertext, but th- that's coming very, very soon. And that'll be a, uh, a, a fat pipeline. Okay, that actually makes more sense in context because, like, as you can, people can tell when they listen to the episode, I had, like, an overly image-centric view of what Vienna does just from, like, messing around with it a little bit. But, like, once I see the overall vision and the text aspects, like, that makes a lot more sense. And is scribe, is scribe like phone like phone native? Yes, it's phone native. Um, I mean, I don't know how low level tech you guys want to go on this, but I could go go into pitch endlessly. Bit. Okay, yeah. So it's it's uh, uh, we, we did it native iOS. Made a terrible decision to use uh, Swift UI, um, and uh, we yeah we rolled the whole backend ourselves, um, and. Uh, yeah, that, that's actually not super trivial because you have to run it to, to get any type of reasonable speed. You got to run it on um, A100s, which are, that's sort of the expensive NVIDIA chip. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like a lot, a lot of people do this inference stuff on on A10s or um, basically ch- cheaper ch- cheaper chips where you can kind of use more existing cloud strategies and then. When you have these really expensive chips, you have to get a little bit more creative um, to you know keep stuff fast but sustainable. But I think yeah, people will be impressed if you know they use Scribe how how quickly it's going to return a ton of text on what is you know a pretty massive model in terms of uh, memory and 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 compute cycles. Yeah, I've been using it over the past week, and it's it's quite fast um, and extremely accurate. I don't think it messed up a single word, uh, which is someone who's also been using dictation tools for a number of years. I was really surprised, especially like compared to Otter, which has gotten better, but is just not at that level yet of Scribe. 
I'm curious, like one need I've had, uh, just as someone who's not great with languages, um, I wonder like how far away are we from just having like real time translation happening? Like if I have an earpiece and someone's speaking in German and having, you know, that return, because if we can get the text uh, in the native language, why can't we then trans and we have translation um, models already built? Like how, how far away are we from that like sort of real time translation actually happening? Do you think? I'm sure. I'm not super up to date on this. I've seen a few demos where this has been claimed to have been achieved, and you know it's probably mm-hmm. like okay, it's a tech demo, it's a Google thing, or it's it's a startup that sort of in perfect conditions can can get it to work. Um, I mean, in terms of like when I would guess that's going to be a, a a thing that you know two tech guys could use. You know, maybe like seven years, five years, something like that. I mean, it's definitely going to come. Um, like barriers that I can see just from building Scribe is, you know, the model is still async. And that's actually really important for accuracy because the little words, I think a huge amount of the advantage of, of Scribe is the fact that it, it can basically use the context of the speech to get little words correct, like ah and an and they and the, mm. which dragon would always mess up. And otter is a little bit better at on their async model. Google is quite good at on their, on their async model. But um, I think real time doing that is, is still pretty tough. But, you know, Google's real time is, is getting there. And I think, um, you know, in our testing, uh, Scribe is actually just more accurate than, than Google. And our guess for why is, you know, it's, it's just more, it's, we're throwing more compute at it. And it's, it's not something that they uh, can afford to do for, for free for the billion Android users or something. But, um, yeah, I think it, it, it's state of the art. When that becomes real time, you know, five years or something seems like, right, it could be even faster. Um, the question of when it'll yeah, happen I on played, device is a whole other thing. But yeah. Yeah, I played with some with some apps this past spring and they were all kind of like shitty. So, um, yeah, I think, (laughs) I think there's like a little bit of difference there between like the marketing and the reality so far is a little like disappointed actually at how bad they were. Um, probably the new demos just because of how fast this field is advancing. Um, I, I could see like, you know, the stuff currently being worked on actually, you know, clearing that hurdle. Um, but yeah, it's quite fascinating because like, yeah, you mentioned the space captain. That's definitely part of it. But then I also just think practically about, you know, if I want to work with, so say, contractors anywhere in the world, um, having really good translation would just be critical. And then also just, I don't know, living abroad. Sometimes it's really, yeah, just difficult to, um, to communicate with people. And it feels like that would be such a game changer in a way that Scribe, like, really takes, you know, is huge, but I feel like translation for people who have to interact with people from outside the U.S. would just be enormous as well. Absolutely, and it would help the sort of monoculture problem, right? If not everyone has to learn English uh, to, mm. to work. Mm. I mean, that, that could be an amazing thing for, for humanity because, you know, pe- people could still travel and really, you know, it could be still a globalized economy, but could be made also more local. I mean, that, that would be incredible. Yeah, we'd also be able to dig into these other cultures' content more, you know, at like a slightly superficial level, but then figure out like, oh, you know, 
what is the state of the art of Brazilian literature and then have an initial sense and then have the motivation to then learn Portuguese ourselves. So yeah, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating, this idea that you had there. I hadn't really thought of it, of just moving away from sameness and having and kind of just letting humans um, be different and kind of thrive on that. You're not up to date on Brazilian literature, dude. Pretty embarrassing to admit on the pod. I think we might we might have to what let kind you of go. Cultural dude. renaissance is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that this provides an interesting pivot to one other thing that I want to ask you about, which is you know, Scribe comes from Open AI software, and we talked a little bit about machine learning and AI, and you described yourself as having an optimistic vision for this future where uh, I uh, love to wallow in, in cynicism. You use the phrase return of Jeffersonian computing. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means to you and what, why, what this optimistic, optimistic vision is. Convince me uh, as a sad cynic that everything's yeah. going to be all right. So the, the Peter Thiel sort of dichotomy from 2019 or, or something was you know, crypto is libertarian and AI is, is communist. And I think that has basically been the, um, the view. I think I would, I would change that and say uh, AI, when you sort of use it daily, I think Copilot is the one that probably most people use. That's like a really useful uh, text generation tool. But I think speech to text and these other things you know, probably also count as AI and they're, they're, they are getting a lot better. Um, that is that's like a lever or it's like a it's like a tractor or something it's increasing the capacity of an individual to uh carry out their their plants carry out the activities of life and uh, in the tractor analogy you know i guess nvidia is the only one that's making the tractors right now or openai is the only one that can you know somehow assemble the tractor but everyone can can use it and everyone's farm can can get bigger. It's it's not zero sum at all. So um that that's the sense in what's which I would connect it to this Jeffersonia idea. It's the idea of sort of the yeoman farmer can become the yeoman programmer. Um and you don't have to have very low level expertise to get a lot done. I mean you you, you have to be still quite tech literate and you have to know how to program and you have to be able to understand situations to to fix bugs. But just in terms of, you know, like into the JavaScript world, writing Redux code or uh, just all, all sorts of weird boilerplate and interacting with APIs and stuff, that's almost already solved. And you can see, you know, in, in, in a few years, um, standing up even like a custom Linux skin is, should be on the table for like a, uh, a code generation model. And um, that, that's exciting. All right, I'm convinced the future is going to be tight. <laughs> no, I, I think that that is really convincing, and it seems like um, it'll be interesting to see what the um, the next generation, what their relationship is to code, coding, and computing. Like, is everyone just going to have a little bit that's going to be a part of their general education, so that they're able to interface with these tools? And certainly, something like um, Urbit. If, if that's successful, encourages people to have that knowledge because there is a real reward for um, being able to interact with your environment that way. And I think it's, it's really cool that uh, this vision you presented of what even just a little bit of knowledge there could mean if these AI tools um, are accelerated. 
I want everyone on the tractors is what I'm, uh, what yeah. I'm yeah. And I, I think that it is just still true that it, it kind of sucks that to make one of these things, you have to be Microsoft or open AI, but, um, that doesn't mean it's super, it doesn't mean it's guaranteed to be, um, after 10 years, a thing that concentrates power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing that like pretty clearly in terms of how like when various models have like gotten out into the open, people just start like spreading them. And I think the um, I don't know the the centralizing AI like meme like is one of those things that sort of sounds very smart. And then like and especially in theory, and as we're getting like practice, there's like you know some pretty clear flaws in the idea. So which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think the joke that I kind of like to just underscore how significant, I mean, maybe AI is even a bad term, but whatever, like it's kind of stuck now. Like you had all these companies realizing they like massive tech companies, probably Facebook is like the biggest, uh, clearest example of this where they could feel their old stack decaying and want to look out for the next big thing. And, um, like in Zuckerberg's case, it's kind of funny because he's like so hard into the sort of yeeted into the metaverse and I think <laughs> like got a little bit wrecked. And the, 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 the next big thing was, was right in front of him. Um, and he, I mean, I know Facebook's still like a good AI company, but they're not open AI. They, they haven't really captured public imagination around the, the concept of like what it could really do for us. And, um, it, yeah, it's interesting to see, just to see these patterns repeat, where even if you know that your company that's going to have big issues and you need to hit the next big thing, it's still somehow really hard to actually to, to, to do that uh, generation over generation. Yeah, and we're seeing that with even, like, sort of the uncertainty now of, like, who will win an AI or what type of thing it will be and whether it is like, you know, a centralizing thing or not. Like it's, yeah, it's all very hard and thus very exciting. Um, yeah. So I guess like, I want to just like recap for our listeners where we've been to this point. Cause we started out the episode just with uh, me and Bitchell and Nilrun talking about, um, you know, the problems of discovery, what it like entails. And then I think, you know, had a really good discussion here with Finn about their practical approaches to it at Vienna. And I think like, you know, where maybe we were a little too either theoretical or like, okay, how do you do better than the current system? I think it's really cool to see the ways in which like Vienna is practically, um, you know, approaching the problem, trying out different, like different things, has some like interesting hypotheses that have like, you know, worked, like worked well in some cases. And then these like sort of surprising extensions that come from that, where we're not just talking about discovery. We're talking about like, you know, communities forming around content, um, content creation, um, and, you know, AI enablers of that. Um, so yeah, it's like, I think it's just very, it's very cool to talk to practitioners because I think for us, like, you know, I spend more of my day at the raw tool level um, doing, you know, Ukbar stuff and trying to make, like, you know, just sort of the very base infrastructure of, like, uh, you know, 
crypto on Urbit work and Bitchell is there too. And they'll run doing, uh, you know, more community related uh, stuff. So it's cool to like, just, you know, have someone in here who's like working at the, at this very practically from the product level and pumping stuff out. So yeah, thanks a lot. It was, it was a great, like, um, you know, concrete motivator to our overly abstract discussion. Thanks guys. It was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, all I can say, we, we just all need to keep moving forward. Um, any port in a storm. And uh, I think, yeah, the, I'm, I'm very excited about the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, I'm more excited about the future than I was at the start of the episode. So thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, totally. I mean, it's, we talk a lot about like the network age as, as if it's coming, but I think Vienna hypertext is something that shows like, oh, we're already in the middle of a lot of um, really exciting changes. So thank you, Finn, for, uh, for being here. And uh, to all our listeners, we will see you next time on The Network Age. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting you know great guests, and giving you what you want if you can just help us with a few things. Uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a good rating if you liked it. You know, Hit that five stars. And our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell, and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show, and we will keep giving you that amazing Network Age content that you love. <laughs>